Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Hello everyone, it is Sunday morning racing TV. That means it's time for luck on Sunday. Time to tell you that NACE has passed its inspection today. So good news, eight races on the flat at NACE goes ahead. A little bit more on that later on. No Nick today, he's pretty much Del Mar bound as we speak. We'll be talking about the Breeders' Cup a bit later on in the show, as well as before that, reviewing some stunning racing. Right, so we start with trainer David Dennis, who is alongside me, a man who handed in his licence uh, over 18 months ago now, but uh, taking it back out not too long ago, and here, I suppose, to, to tell me why. But first of all, David, welcome along. Um, we were looking back at that shot of you walking up the gallops, and I said, when was that? And you were a year out, so it's 2015, you said 14. <laughs> you haven't aged a bit. You haven't changed. No, thank you. I feel as though I have. <laughs> yes. Well, after the two years you've had, I can understand why you'd, you'd say you, you, you thought you might have aged a bit. Just, just take me through it then. Almost go back um, two years to the day, if you can. So we're, 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 we're going into a, a winter and a new season for you. Was it at the, the forefront of your mind that it could be your last season training? Um, yes and no. I mean, I was faced with a situation. I'd, I was very lucky. I'd got set up by my ex-wife's in-laws um, at a yard near Hanley Swan in Worcestershire. Um, I trained there for seven seasons and uh, during that period I trained over 150 odd winners and unfortunately the yard was it was a big yard, it was 60 stables. Um, I always had a roughly around about 30 horses, we did get up to 40 one year um, and I just knew I was always going to struggle financially, it wasn't, it wasn't viable to stay there. Um, I tried to find the right size yard to move to um, and stay local within the, the sort of the county. Um, and I struggled, struggled to do to find somewhere. That was the the hardest part. Um, so I I approached Tom Simmons and sort of told him my situation, um, and he had room to accommodate his horses that I used to train. Uh, went to him. Uh, it was May the first, two thousand and twenty, um, and was with him for a period as his assistant. Um, so so that obviously en encompasses the pandemic and that time. So it wasn't. It wasn't a case of um, no racing, global pandemic, you're, you're going you're to hand in your licence. That was already going to happen, just the fact that we stopped racing meant it brought it forward. Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, I think the last race meeting I had a runner at was at Taunton in March, um, which was actually a winner. Um, but I was, was going to relinquish my licence in May that year anyway. And it was it was really personal circumstances that brought that round. You 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 say you're you're, you're now ex-wife. So because of what was what was going on personally, it meant that you couldn't stay in the yard you were in, and and you hadn't had a chance to find anywhere else. So that you yeah. had no option. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean it was it was disappointing and frustrating because I sort of had uh, an amount of horses that that you know I knew I could. I, keep a business but it was never viable where I was mm. um, so 
yeah, I, I, I went, like I said, I went to Tom Simmons as his assistant and it all went very well. Um, and then the turn of the new year, this year, I sort of made my mind up. I thought I was ready to, you know, reapply for my license. Again, tr trying to find the right size yard was always never, that, 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 does, that, that doesn't happen overnight, unfortunately. They're very, you know, yards with facilities that are licensed and somewhere to live, you know, in a certain area around the Midlands are few and far between. So I went to very, Matt Shepherd very calmly accommodated me and I took a number of horses with me again. Um, all my owners that um, came with me were very understanding. Um, it wasn't ideal doing that in the middle of the season. Um, it was it was probably a bit of a brave move, but um, I'd made my mind up. Um, and now I've reapplied for my license in the summer and got, had my first runners in August. Just to, to, to take you back to the, the time with Tom then, um, you obviously are a trainer that's been, been training for, for some time. You then go back to work as an assistant officially. You, you take your own horses there as well, and I'm sure in the main are looking after those. What, what was that dynamic like? Was that how, how difficult was it in some ways to, to not, for it not to be your name on the license? Um, I didn't really bother me at the time. Um, a few of my owners were sort of thinking, you know, I went there on the understanding we would potentially look at a training partnership because mm. the BHA had brought that incentive in. Um, but that was never going to be straightforward. Um, so, it, yes, it was a different dynamic, but I, I still I enjoyed my time there and the horses ran fantastically. I think we had probably the highest strike rate in the country for a while. Um, and I look back at it and think, well, it was the right thing to do from my personal point of view. Um, and so it wasn't as if it didn't... It didn't, it's not like it didn't work out, it just it, it came to its natural conclusion at the start of the year. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, uh, at the start of this year, I'd sort of made my mind up that I need to get my own licence back and, and go into Matt Shepherd's. Um, he was very helpful and understood my situation, and I was never going to stay there. Mm. Um, was there ever a possibility of a dual licence there, or was that ever considered? No, I sort of made my mind that I, I needed to do, you know, what I needed to do on my own two feet again. Um, and yeah, it did. Matt's, Matt's got a fantastic yard, but it didn't really have scope to expand, um, and it had limited facilities, which mm. you know it didn't stop the horses winning. So you know, I look back at that time there, and things went, well, went very well again. Would you ever consider a, a joint license with with someone going forward? And what would you say are the potential? Obviously, we're seeing it more and more, certainly on the flat a little bit of it over jumps. What would you say are the potential advantages for, say, trainers with a size operation such as yourselves, or even bigger? Yeah, I think, I think they are a good idea. Um, I think a lot of them are obviously family connections or son, father and son, you know, Thady and John Gosden, for example. I think it's a good idea because it, it can be a slow progression for, for a son to take over, for example, mm. or, you know, husband and wife. Um, and it's a very much a team thing. Racing yards are a team, you know, the word team is key. Um, so I think, yeah, I would put, potentially look at it again, but I, I sort of made my mind up at the turn of the year. I had to get on with it again, and, and that's what I've done. How did it come about then? How did you find the right yard to go and, and retake out the licence? So I've, I'm now at uh, Edgecote, um, which is an estate-owned premises. So I'd heard that there potentially could be a barn there and I, when I went there in May and had a look at it, I saw the facilities and thought it was pretty much a pay-as-you-go basis. Um, you pay for the gallops each week per horse per week. 
um, and I'm paying for a barn. It's 16 stables. I know exactly to the penny how much it costs, and I, I, I'm comfortable with that. I've got you know enough horses and enough very loyal owners who've come with me um, that I know where I stand. Mm. Um, whereas the previous yard I was in, I just always knew it was always going to be an uphill climb. Mm. In fact, impossible. But you know, it, I look back at it and fond memories. I had, I had some great, great winners from there, and it was a great time of my life. Welcome back. We'll be looking back at yesterday's National Hunt bonanza of racing very shortly. Richard Hoyle's alongside me. Morning, um, Tom. Have you got over the drama of Weatherby? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> a lot to digest on the way home. And it's also this time of year as well, trying to keep tabs on what's going on. Ireland, Ascot, final throws of the flat season. So, yeah, it's a busy time, but I, I don't know. There's always one race, isn't there, that whets your appetite for the jump season ahead and we had one yesterday which we'll come on to in a moment or two's time. Some brilliant racing and where else to start but with the Labrooks champion chase at Down Royal and Frodon and Bryony Frost bowling along, Rachel Blackmore, Manella Indo tracking them at, at this point and actually um, Bryony said in her interview afterwards she was so frustrated with herself for, for giving up her inner what she felt was a, a, a crucial part of the race and up snuck Manella Indo but this horse in front, all heart. And it was just, I thought it was the most fantastic, fantastic race. I picked up off the back of it in here. I was stood up on my feet, probably shouting, because it was just so exciting. It was just a brilliant horse race with lots of little dimensions to it as well. They got out of sync briefly at halfway. Frodon put down when Bryony up, asked him up once, and she had to kick in. And if you told me that Frodon would be would outstay Galvin from the last but maybe outstays the wrong but that's where we put in that short one and you'll see that for a moment or two they just get out of rhythm I think it's the next fence that Bryony just rather than sitting still which is what she tends to do with Frodon just asks a little bit more than she normally does and I thought oh maybe you're just a little bit out of the rhythm that is normally so there you see a little bump which she doesn't normally do yeah if you told me that this horse would repel Galvin from the last over this trip I would have as I have so many times with this horse, thought you were you mad. Put the race into to context with where the other runners were, if you can. Well, I think in terms of Manella Indo, it's the beginning of a longer season. Paul Nichols was quoted afterwards as saying this is Frodon's Gold Cup. Limited opportunities for the horse, really, because we're not talking about the Gold Cup, whereas that is the target for Manella Indo. So mm. they're at different stages of their preparation. I think, however, to turn Galvin away, who was race fit, um, had sat off what appeared to be a reasonable pace. You can see Bryony keep giving breathers into the horse. But for Galvin to get there, watching this, I was, I did, if you were asking me to back in running, I would definitely have been backing Galvin. Because you just feel that Manila Indo is just constantly applying a little bit of pressure when Bryony tries to get a breather in. Here you thought she might go clear, and yet you'll see that they all pack up again. And with that break and the, the rhythm of jumping, again, asking a little bit more, I honestly thought they'd he'd come back and be picked off by those that had sat at the back. There, there was a point as well where Manella Indo's stride seemed to shorten and I thought, goodness me, at, at one stage I thought he, he, you know, he, he might not even be, be making it round. What, what did you make of, of his performance as a comeback run? It's one of those where they'll be pleased, but it, you're right, there, there is a moment to do. We'll try and pick it up on the... He's, he's not the best mover. Mm. He moves a little bit short at times. And just here, you just begin to feel that Frodon has Manella Indo stretching. But the two out the back have just lobbed along and got into the race seemingly comparatively cheaply. I'm afraid I don't know Down Royal well enough or see enough races to know what the breakdown would be of sectionals in comparison to the prime. But here you see, for the first time now, on Manila Indo, 
Rachel Blackmore's just a little bit unhappy, but the other two seem to have just got into the race so smoothly without spending a penny. Now, I've never been, of those two, Galvin is the one I definitely would prefer. Um, and just here, we might get a shot here of another window. Not really. Um, but there were warning signs, weren't there? That well, he was again, it's a long. So it's so important this time of the season. We'll talk it with reference to the Charlie Hall as well as what objectives are. And this is where Manila Rindo really is flat to the boards. Mm. And this is where you thought Froden might steal away, but when Galvin makes his ground so easily, well, then it's just all about great heart from the horse and Bryony constantly trying to fill the tank. But just here, honestly, I, I thought Galvin would sweep by. Yeah, and. I mean, he, he, he gets his nose in front and, and Frodon has to... Frodon yeah, battles I mean, back. Yeah, I mean, Lorindo's got to... There was a race years and years ago that I remember for various personal reasons of Floyd and um, Ride Again, I think it was, and Floyd was stepping up in trip and he'd never looked a three-miler. It was a race at Ascot and he out-battled Ride Again from the last. And here, I honestly thought Galvin would move away and win by a length. And then the longer Frodon stays in there pitching, you now feel it's the great resolution of the horse and yeah, anyway, he's gone away again and it's a fantastic performance he is a horse that constantly surprised me at the beginning of the if you asked me to do a National Hunt preview I would have said Frodon had his day in the sun King George last year you know that was the race and fair play to Paul Nichols because against the trend if you like he sent Clandis Obo over now and also Frodon to win a big race in what in theory was the better opposition's backyard if you yes. believe what happened last year and, and, and one thing that was lovely as well was uh, Gary O'Brien talking about the reception that Frodon and Bryony Frost got afterwards. Now, as you say, he's gone over to Ireland, he's beaten a Gold Cup winner, and Galvin, a very popular horse, in their own backyard. But it, it shows what a popular horse and what a popular rider, I think, and their partnership together, Bryony and Frodon, are to have walked back into the Down Royal Winners enclosure and got the reception they did. Oh, and we're in track at Weatherby, where it was shown. I mean, the, the yeah. fantastic reception. You know, it, it, and obviously Paul and um, Megan Nichols were both at Weatherby as well. And the whole paddock was mm. you know alive so was the race course out front and that's the enduring nature i said when we were sitting right at the beginning of the show you know that's the race that we'll probably still be talking about at the end of the season but there'll be others as well just whet your appetite for for what's going to come about how popular the longevity are of horses that be able to stand training and put up performances like this year in year out and it's the way he does it isn't it that, that, that there's something about the way he goes about it from the front to battle back it's more it's more satisfying in a way to see, or, or it, it gets you more excited than a horse that creeps into it and, and picks up the pieces. Yeah, it may be. And, and I mean, the front runner is always good, isn't it? You know, like your desert orchids of years gone by. But he is multi dimensional in the sense that he pulls out more when challenged. And the great combination that has been forged between Bryony Frost and she's so infusive in her interviews afterwards and giving the horse a personality, if you like. I have no idea whether that's right or not because I've never ridden, but the bond is clearly really, really strong. The trust is there, but it's just the performance and the manner of it. I so I thought the horse's Achilles heel would be the final 150 Stamina, yards yeah. and it turned out yeah. that that was yet another asset in Frodon's armoury. So fair play, fair and, play. And I think not lost on Bryony for her to be in, in the headlines for, I don't want to say the right reason, that's the wrong thing to say, but for, for, for racing reasons, for, for winning a big race on track, given what's happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Look, in sport, it's easy to be diverted, isn't it? You know, when things are going on in the background sidelines, in years to come, you hear sportsmen interviewed and say, I wasn't in a good place. There was lots in the background that was putting me off. So for that, I'm sure it meant a massive amount to her. She probably felt in a happy place on the back of Frodon after what's all gone on. But for him to deliver a performance like that, 
hopefully keeps things in perspective. Everything is important within racing, um, and it's important as we're chatting with Susanna that things are discussed, but also equally important is the core product. And sometimes we can overplay other things and lose sight of what makes racing great, and that race makes racing great. We had three horses on the day shortening up for the King George. One was Frodon, the other was Chamblou, we'll come to that. The other was Envoy Allen, who it now seems as though won't be campaigned as such, and it might be the John Durkin that he goes to in early December over two and a half. Um, first things first, great to see him back in the winner's enclosure. Absolutely, because I've always felt that when horses build up long winning sequences, the first time they're beaten can actually lead to a complete loss of form. You know, horses like Blackjack, Ketchum, Moscow Flyer, um, he fell in between, but when he was finally beaten, he didn't win again for a considerable period of time. It's almost like a boxer that believes they're invincible and then all of a sudden finds they're not. Now, his was rather unusual because he came down to Cheltenham, so that was a fall, and then he was lame last time. But when you see two letters against a horse's name after those string of ones, you're just naturally slightly suspicious as to whether or not the horse is the real deal or is accumulating problems, because let's face it, National Hunt horses, as we know, week in, week out, you know, we're forced to do without a few of them because of injuries in the sidelines. And so the nice thing here was the ease mm. with which the horse travelled through the race, the way the horse jumped. Obviously, this is not going to test him in terms of being pressed and harried from a long way out, but certainly you feel the, the fire was still burning and you hope that that continues in better company. We talk a lot about a rider's confidence, I think, because we are humans and we can, we can understand that a little bit better than perhaps a horse's confidence. But when a horse falls and, and, and sustains a heavy fall in amongst horses, say, as was the case at Cheltenham, there is that worry that it can dramatically affect their confidence. This was, I suppose, a nice confidence booster for him. Well, particularly as it wasn't as if he was roughed off for the season by then, but then went to Punchestown and had a race where it finished, well, didn't finish, yeah. know, pulled up lame. So presumably there was an element, again, I don't know, there was an element of discomfort and mm -hmm. pain for the horse. So now you've looked at your last two experiences being ending up on the deck and the shock for that, and then finishing lame. So... If the horse has a psychological quirk, and as you say, we tend to humanise them, don't we? And, but, you know, you might just back off it a little bit and be a little bit suspicious. I didn't see any signs of that, albeit in that company, and that's encouraging for the season going forward. It, it feels as though, as, a, uh, as a, a younger horse, obviously with a different trainer, he was talked of as a, as a Gold Cup horse in the making. Are we, are we done with that, do we think? I don't, no, no, don't know yet. There have been plenty that, of course, have been talked up in their younger days and haven't quite reached the pinnacle unfortunately we didn't really see towards the back end of last year but I, I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't rule it out as yet mm. the, the, that step up in trip might be you know in top company might be the, the question that needs to be answered but still early days if that there's no issues as regards you know we'll be talking about surname for example you know with relation to the Charlie Hall those issues can accumulate accumulate nibble away at your ability and it becomes increasingly fleeting Hopefully, Envoy Allen is not just back for yesterday, but back for the rest of the season, and we can begin to answer those questions. Now, you were at Weatherby yesterday. You were uh, calling the um, Charlie Hall chase. Uh, it was a, a, an unbelievable finish, really. From the home turn, it was unbelievable because of, of what happened and what Chamblou did to, to surname the, the horse in front of him uh, with Harry Skelton on board. We're going to be speaking to the winning rider um, of Fusa Raffles, Daryl Jacobs, shortly. But first of all, the, the trainer of the horse who um, was everything but the winner, really, Dan Skelton, joins me on the line. Dan, we're, we're watching as uh, Chamblou takes it up on the home turn with, with four to jump. Thanks ever so much for, for joining me. Um, what, what were you thinking at this point as the horse turned for home, Dan? Um, I was thinking... We'll go to the King George next. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> just you know, you should never get ahead of yourself. But uh, I think he took he took us all by surprise how much injection of pace he put in at that point, and he's obviously an improved horse on last year even. So, you know, Harry was just surprised at sort of the injection he gave him. Obviously, he was very slick four out, um, and then you jump in offences. There's going to be one in the wrong place, and three out. The fence was just in the wrong place, and Harry's at, you know, Harry sat still because he knows he's on the next stride. Chandler's 50-50, you know, and unfortunately they both came down, but both are okay. What more can you say? You just got to, you know, you got to pick yourself up, and move on. And as a trainer or a jockey, it's going to happen to you a number of times in your career. As an owner, it's going to happen to you once or twice as well. So, you know, you've just got to. You know, hope fingers crossed you get away with it and and, and move on. That's all you can do. Mm. And we we talked about Richard and I just been talking about Envoy Allen who came down at Cheltenham and a horse's confidence. Is that a concern for you that it it it, it might have you know hindered his confidence going forward? Is that something you're only going to going to find out when you get him out again? No, not with him because actually when he was a novice herder, he fell at Newbury, and I remember being half irate with him because he actually he, he was too bold and that day, and he he almost sort of threw himself on the floor with with a silly jump and I ran him about a week later and he won a novice hurdle um, and he, he's got you know he's got the constitution physical and mental to to get over something like this um, the most important thing is soundness and he was he was sound immediately afterwards yesterday he's sound this morning we you know we consider ourselves very very lucky that he is um, but you've got to you've got to pick up a move on now I don't think there's going to be an emotional scar here um, I can't guarantee it. I can't, you know, I can only talk on his behalf the best that I know him. I can't get, you know, he can't directly tell me that it's not a problem, but I'd be surprised. He's he's probably, you know, one of the, one of the, the sort of many horses that I could say they're tough enough to, to, to bounce back. And Dan, when they're so exuberant at their fences and he jumps so soundly to that point, yeah. it's not uncommon that their falls are then perlers, is it? You know, even going Good back to the desert orchid days, you know. Good jumpers get bad falls, yeah, because he, they he, don't he, expect to fall. He, he, for, for you, there was no element of, of tiredness or anything like that. For you, it's just one of those things. Just look. Unfortunately, when you jump as many jumps as the horse does, when you jump as many jumps as Harry does, there's going to be the odd one or two that the fence is in the wrong place. And the, I don't think there was a miscommunication. Harry was waiting for the for the close stride. Shan Blue's. You know he's got the afterburners on. He's ignited. He's flying down to that jump, and Shan Blue's probably thinking, "Well, let's keep going." And and Harry's like, "Well, that's not the stride to take off on. If we take off on this one, we're in big trouble." Um, and you know, if the fence was if the fence was two foot closer, they'd have got away with it. If the cl- fence was two foot further away, they'd have got away with it. But you know, the fence is in the place as it is, and and it needs to be jumped. And you know, look, I, I'm just you know, I'm 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 just happy that. He's okay, and the other thing is, is like if he was a ten-year-old and sort of the race fell into his lap, and that was the only big race the horse was ever going to win, I'd be distraught. But I think we can all agree that we've seen something a bit special there, and you know there are big days to come with him. So you know we just have to be quite grown up about the fact he's fallen, and yeah, the race was at his mercy. But like I said yesterday, we're, we're missing a trophy, not a horse, mm. and yeah, that's the just, main thing. Yeah, which is a good way of putting it. Should ask you, Dan. I mean, you know, obviously three out. Technically, I believe the handicapper has to leave him unchanged. Yeah. Off the back of that, is the Labrooks Trophy too tough an ask over three and a quarter miles, or is it very tempting when you look at that mark and what he might have achieved yesterday? 
it's massively tempting. I mean, <laughs> Kitty, Kitty's light's got to give him a pound. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah Richard, um, Richard said that you'd say that. I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because you know full well if that entry didn't exist, you would be looking at somewhere quiet and confidence restoring. But, yeah, it is very tempting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you've got, look, I've got to talk to Colm. And, you know, the way he actually raced yesterday behind surname was great. And mm. he, he actually accepted that lead and it, everything was going well. And then, obviously... Harry kicked on turning in, and he was surprised by the response he got. But you know, we could, if, if surname had took us further, we could have sat, we could have waited further, if you know what I mean. But I don't think the trip's an issue. Um, Newbury as a track is not an issue. You know, I'd prefer it to be ten runners, not twenty. But that's that's not the Ladbrook. Um, it, it's uh, you know, it's it's one of the biggies in the calendar, and you sometimes only get once in a career chance to win a race like that. And it's staring us quite obviously in the face off 148. So you've got to take it very, very seriously. That's not me saying it's the only thing we're going to do. Um, and I had a half a discussion with Colm Donlan about it yesterday. And we're, you know, we're both talking about it very professionally and giving it the time of day that it deserves. We're not just, you know, we're not being flippant about it, but, um, Ultimately, we've 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 got a big decision to make. Um, yeah, if it had fallen two out, it, it, it's taken out of the equation. Um, you know, so it's it, you've, you've kind of got to make the decision. You, you, it's not been made for you. Which sometimes in racing, decisions are made for you, but this is one we've actually got to make. Now, the man that won both the features yesterday was Daryl Jacob. He joins me on the line now. Daryl, we're, we're watching you scamper away on Indefatigable in the West Yorkshire hurdle, about 365 hurdle. This is the first time you've, you've ridden her. How impressed were you, Daryl? Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, I was very impressed with her. Um, you know, the one thing she's got, she's got a, a wonderful attitude. Um, she's, she's very brave. And, um, you know, when I've when I seen her race at, uh, when she won in the flat, uh, uh, her last run, I thought, um, you know, I kind of seen everything that I wanted to know about her. Um, she's wonderfully, wonderfully tough. She's a lovely jumper. And uh, like you say, off 10 stone 7 yesterday, she, she scooted clear, didn't she? Just take me through how you felt the race rode, if you will. Obviously, you've got the likes of Paisley Park in there we know as a thorough stay at. How, how, take me through the race. How, how did it ride as a contest? Yeah, look, for, for, for me... Um, you know, obviously, the first time I've ridden, ridden the mare, obviously, I spoke a lot to, to Gavin, she, and, and Rex Dingle um, about it. They've ridden her quite a lot in the past. And, um, you know, she was really, I was sort of, um, and, and obviously speaking to, to Paul, um, you know, she was sort of a mare that kind of, she's kind of let her find her own feet. Um, and where she is, where she's happy, just keep her traveling, keep her jumping there. And uh, I literally just, just played with her, played a bit through, through her mouth. And, uh, be fair to her, she was very, very straightforward yesterday. And um, we went, Master Tommy Tucker went, uh, went an even gallop. We gave him five or six lengths um, the whole way. I went a little bit wider because obviously the ground she wants a little bit. She doesn't want the ground too, too deep, too heavy. Um, so I just went wide. And to be honest with you, the race was was very straightforward for my part. Yeah, you, you seem pretty confident that, uh, or, or on top, your body language suggested that you you felt certainly in the straight that you were the one that was going to go and win it. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, I knew she'd I knew she'd come home well because like you say, she's tough and she's brave, and uh, you know I knew she'd come home well with me. Now it's fair to say probably that turning into the straight on Fusil Raffles in the Bet Three Six Five Charlie Hall, you probably didn't think you were going to go and, and win the race. Just, just how aware were you of what was happening ahead of you, Daryl? 
Look at obviously we we went a nice even gallop um, again. Surname and Topville Ben they were they were they were up um, kind of blazing the trail again. The, the the race has run at a you know a good even tempo from from the start. Um, and like I say I was just obviously with Susie Raffles first time over the trip, so you know I wanted to make sure that I still had a a bit of a bit of juice left in the tank. Um, you know coming up the home straight and. Uh, you know, turning in, turning into home. I jumped the open ditch. I jumped that very, very well. I kind of got onto the back of the the coattail of of Harry um, of Harry Skelton, um, and obviously turned for home. Then, um, you know, I think Shamblu just had a real injection of pace and like really quickened, and he, he got a lot of daylight between us very, very quickly. Um, what you what are you thinking? Then. What are you thinking when that happens? When you see a horse like that travelling in front of you, just just quicken away from you like that. Well, look. Obviously, it was going to take a. You know what I mean? It was going to take, especially from from my horse. It would have taken a monumental effort to try to get back to him. It was just a case you were hoping that the horse, you know, that quickened where that might get a little bit tired and you might come come and do him at the end of it. But to be honest with you, the race was, you know, the race was. I thought the race was nearly put to bed there. So you know, all I had turned for home really was was to try and try and make second. And to be honest with you. If I had got second, then I think it would have been a good, a good second. I would have been very, very proud of my horse at his, at his first attempt over that sort of trip. And I mean, jumping's the name of the game, isn't it? So we lost Chamblou three out, and then have you, have you suddenly got a switch? I know you're, you're you're vying for second. You're still trying to win that race for second. But is there an element more of you, of you getting him to switch on again when suddenly the race is at your mercy and, and you realise you're, you're you're going to go and try and win the race now? Well, no, you still got to, yeah, you're still going, but like you say, you still got, you're still racing from, from the from the home bend. So you know, we still had to try and get, try and get by surname at some point in the race. So, um, you know, it was it was trying to conserve the energy for, for a fencer to 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 to, to have enough um, petrol left in the tank to, to get me home to to get past them. But obviously, when when Harry's horse fell, um, it was it was a, a totally different kettle of fish because then you know everyone was. Vying for everyone was vying to try and get the try and get the win. Um, you know, my lad once once Harry's fell, you know, he picked his ears an awful lot and he wasn't doing much out in front, but he was always doing enough out in front for me and like say he's he's always been a very, very genuine horse and uh, you know, he gives it all he can. Right, a bit more Breeders' Cup chat. Next, Christina Blacker has been out in Del Mar for us. Here's a report on some of the key contenders working at Del Mar. Christina Blacker here from Southern California, and it is crunch time. We are so excited for the Breeders' Cup to return to California to the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club for the second time. So this is the final weekend, and this is where we are seeing the final preparations and the works for these runners. The team at TVG, we have been focused on the breakfast at the Breeders' Cup show. So I wanted to share a couple of those key workouts with you now. First of all, weather has been a bit of an issue back east, and especially in Kentucky. Many horses at both Keeneland and Churchill Downs were scheduled to work on Saturday. Those works have been pushed to Sunday. So Nick's go, Essential Quality, both from the Brad Cox Barn, they will work on Sunday. That video and information to come, and we will certainly be sharing it on social media. But here at Santa Anita on Friday, we did get to see Medina Spirit put in his final workout for the Breeders' Cup. Now remember, Bob Baffert has been approved to run horses in the Breeders' Cup with an extra level of surveillance and of testing 
at his own expense. Medina Spirit going in company, and he went in company with a horse by the name of Axeman. Axeman is a very fast sprinter. He's a horse that is going to give you a lot of speed, and he is going to push a workhorse in the morning. This is what Bob Baffert likes to see from his horses. Medina Spirit is on the inside here. You'll see the rider with the red light on his helmet. That will enable you to pick him up. He ends up going 111 and 3 for the six furlongs. This is a typical Bob Baffert work. He trains a lot of fitness into his horses. He works a lot of them in company. He wants them really to get quite a bit out of those morning routines. And he pushes them through the gallop out as well. They'll finish past the wire and they will gallop all the way through the turn to make sure that you get as much into the bottom of them stamina-wise as possible. All eyes on Medina Spirit on Friday, looking like he is certainly ready for a tilt at the Breeders' Cup Classic. At Del Mar on Saturday, we had a very eventful work for Latruska. Latruska comes into the Breeders' Cup with four win-and-you're-in races on her resume already. She certainly secured herself a spot. She will be the favorite in the distaff. Now, she unfortunately caught some company here. There are not that many horses down at Del Mar as of right now. A Richard Baltus two-year-old started a work ahead of her, ended up dropping down, and these two are going to go in company. You'll notice the rider on Latruska, who is aboard the inside, on the inside path, staying very high in the saddle. He doesn't really want to engage this other horse. He does not really want to push her because they don't want to do too much this close to the race. Now, she's plenty fit. She's had a long campaign this year. She hasn't missed any dances. So from a fitness standpoint, you wouldn't be too concerned about this, but it certainly wasn't according to plan for them. I'm sure they would have preferred just a nice, easy work out there on her own. It will be a busy couple days in terms of travel. We do know that the international horses, all 56 of them, have already touched down in Southern California and made their journey to Del Mar. They will undergo a quarantine period before hitting the racetrack. On October 31st, on Sunday, there will be a plane that leaves Newark, and that will bring all of the horses from New York. So think Todd Pletcher, think Chad Brown. Those horses will make their way to Del Mar. They'll fly right into San Diego, which is very convenient. You're only about 20 minutes from Del Mar at that point. And then on November the 1st, on Monday, another plane will leave Indianapolis. So all of the horses from Kentucky, this weather that we've been keeping an eye on, they cannot afford to delay those works too much longer because everybody has to be on the grounds at Del Mar on Tuesday. We will bring you many more updates on social media and look forward to the Breeders' Cup returning to Del Mar for the second time, November the 5th and 6th. For now, I'm Christina Blacker, and we look forward to sharing those races with you right here in the future. Right, uh, Safer Gambling Week starts next week and uh, joining Richard and I on Zoom is Mark Potter who is the Head of Delivery at Epic Risk Assessment. Mark, a former professional sportsman uh, with his own uh, gambling story. Mark, uh, welcome along. How's things? Good morning, guys. Yeah, OK, thanks. Um, Mark, I suppose that the best thing um, to do, if you can, for, for anyone that, that doesn't know you or, or your story is, is just take us back to, to your life as professional sportsman, struggled with a gambling problem to now being the, the head of delivery at Epic Risk? Yeah, look, I think I, from from a young age, I was hugely into sport. It was all I ever wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to be able to play to, to a reasonably high level in, in, in rugby and, and, and now sort of into cricket. And I think it's it's something that is intrinsically linked with sport, isn't it, gambling? And, and to an extent, that that's, that's a good thing in terms of sponsorship and... Um, but I think what we need to understand is to make sure it's safe, and especially for athletes who are, I guess, at least four times 
more likely than the general population to suffer from gambling harm. For me, that was the case. All, all I ever wanted to do was play sport. I was such a competitive guy. And, um, and I think for me, it first started when I got I got injured as, as a young lad at, at 19 and quite a long-term injury. And, and I was looking for things, for other things to sort of fill the void. I think in terms of competitive spirit, the adrenaline, the ups and downs of winning and losing at sports. Um, and, I, and I found that in gambling. Um, did it to a very low level at first and then sort of had a significantly large win at 19 or 14 grand from a 30 pound bet and, uh, and that just changed everything about how I approached it um, it increased my stakes literally overnight from two and three pound bets on horses and, and, and football to two and three hundred pound bets on the same uh, because I could because I had access to money um, and because at the time I didn't think there was any risk and, and that sort of was the start of a journey that led me to to doing all kinds of um, weird and wonderful things, I think, um, ultimately culminating in um, loss of job, um, almost loss of relationship, marriage um, and, and a suicide attempt in 2013. Um, but fortunately enough, that, that didn't happen. Um, I went to treatment and luckily enough for me through the Rugby Players Association, I had access to treatment at Sporting Chance Clinic in January 2013. And for me, that was great. It was everything I needed to get. And what it did was, I think it, I learned more importantly than anything was to understand the reasons why I did what I did. And I think through sport and being that competitive person, and no matter what level of sport you play, I think that that is it in everybody that, that plays it. Um, I just didn't like losing. Um, I wanted to win every time I gambled. I wanted to win every time I played sport, and that's still the case today. Um, and I took that into my betting, unfortunately. And, and when I started to lose, I didn't enjoy it. And I wanted to always either continue to get the buzz and the adrenaline, the highs of winning. And when that started, when I started to lose, I was a significant loss chaser because I didn't enjoy the feeling of being a loser. Um, and I chased that for such a long time. And I think that it's something that you need to be aware of, especially for those involved in sport, um, is to be able to do it in a safe and sustainable way, well within your limits. And it's something I just couldn't do for such a long time. And only after stopping and getting the treatments I needed was I able to kind of get get to the other side and, and understand what, what I wasn't doing wasn't healthy and, and it was affecting me and my relationships and my my sport and my work and and all kinds of things in a negative way and uh, I guess for everybody who's involved in sport for everybody who gambles it's around understanding what it means to you and how you can do it in a way that doesn't affect you I think for me gambling should always be something that's done for fun and enjoyment and when that stops being the case as it did for me very early I think that's when you need to start looking at your relationship with it. And I think that the kinds of things like, say, for Gambling Week is great and it highlights the importance of it. For us as a company, Epic, I think we think it should be done 24-7 every day and not just highlighted for a week. Um, but anything that highlights harm prevention and sort of raising awareness of, of what gambling harm is and can do to people is, is a good thing, I think. Mark, you, you obviously talk very eloquently about your own personal situation. It obviously went to quite extremes before if you like you sought the help what are we looking for say for gambling week are we looking to give people the option to access that help when do you feel at any stage 
somebody could have provided that assistance to you earlier to stop you getting to that place? Or is it a personal thing that varies from individual to individual? I think I think everything's personal, everything's individual, because for me, it was a kind of a number of uh, life events, experiences and circumstances got me to where I was. I, I got an injury. I had a significant big win. I then sort of that enhanced everything that I did. I, I didn't I wasn't I wouldn't have considered myself a vulnerable person up to then. But those events made that the case. And I think for me, Save a Gambling Week is twofold. It's about highlighting, for those that it isn't a problem for, it's highlighting things like setting limits, making sure that you're doing everything in a way that is well be well within your sort of disposable income limits and you're not seeing all those vulnerable traits come in, like loss chasing, increased deposits, reverse withdrawals, things like that, that are obviously negative aspects of gambling. I think it's around raising awareness of that encouraging safer gambling play but for those that are i guess going through some of the experiences that i did it's hopefully shining a light on the fact that this is something that is a significant issue in society it's 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 a very secretive thing it's it's a lot different than things like drugs and alcohol for example it's something that you can do behind closed doors and there's obviously no physical tell signs that you're struggling with it so i think it's about raising awareness it's breaking a bit of stigma around this and making sure that people are aware of, of the pitfalls and the risks associated to it. So I think in terms of that, Save a Gambling Week is a great thing. I think those who've suffered from harm would argue that it's sometimes often a little bit of an industry um, plug in terms of advertising. But I think it's, it's about getting the right balance and understanding that those who haven't yet suffered from harm are aware of what the risks can possibly be so they don't go down that hole. And for those that are currently suffering from harm, um, are encouraged to get the support that they obviously need. And, and that was the case for me. Um, it's it's yeah. interesting, Mark, to hear you talk about somebody who's obviously suffered a great deal because of this, coming at it from a standpoint of saying, gambling should and can be fun, but there needs to be the, well, the balance, right balance. safeguard. Yeah, balance there. is a re really good use of the word there, actually, in terms of that's the point, because you could stop gambling addiction, as Mark would know, by, you know, outlawing gambling. Yeah. But that takes away, as Mark has also said, you know, streams of income from sport, you know, absolute business. And many who enjoy gambling would say, well, hang on a second, I'm perfectly responsible. It's when you're in that bad place, Mark, isn't it? It's stopping it spiralling until you get, you know, the further down the spiral you get, the harder it is to see the, the sky again. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that when you're involved in it, it's really hard to, to sort of draw a line under the sand because it, unlike other things, it's always something that I always assumed because I'd experienced win, wins uh, of a significant level, that that was always around the corner and it could happen again. So that probably kept me going for such a long time. And as I said, for me, it's about making sure that people are aware that it is something, it is a leisure activity that should be done for fun and enjoyment. And for that to be the case, it has to be at a safe and sustainable level. And everybody should promote that, absolutely. And I think for me, it stopped becoming about fun and enjoyment as soon as I won my money, really, because for then it was about trying to replicate the buzz and the adrenaline of how good that felt. And if I'm honest, it felt good to win money. And, and that's, I guess, a big part of the draw to it. But then very quickly after that, when it started to go wrong and it started to go south, I was doing it for, I guess, for escapism because things started to go wrong lifestyle-wise. I wasn't enjoying family time or sport or anything really. And 
and I used it to to get away from it because when I was involved in the whole process of betting, it was it was almost like you didn't have to worry or stress about other things that were going on because you were so zoned in on that. So I think it's just about highlighting and absolutely like you say, balance is is a massive thing because again, it should always be done for that for that fun element. And when that stops being a case for an individual, it's about recognizing when that is and having the right support and operators being able to have effective conversations and put some things in place to mitigate going down that route of, of harm, because that's what we as a company absolutely subscribe to. I, I don't think anybody should lose a minute of time or a pound they can't afford to lose. And I think that's what's key is making sure that people are not doing the wrong things um, and making sure they're aware of what the risks are. Right, from the Breeders' Cup to point-to-pointing, so a slight shift now, but uh, delighted to say that champion point-to-point trainer Tom Ellis is now alongside me. Uh, welcome to the show, Tom. How's things? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> uh, a great start to your season yesterday. Yeah, yeah, all off through flooding, so yeah, brilliant start. <laughs> did, did well to get it flooded, I think, given that, I mean, Weatherby ended up good to soft. I know it was soft at Ascot, but I thought they're... It, probably underneath the flooding, it wasn't too bad. No, but there I you go. it would have been fine, but it uh, just sums up the British weather for you, doesn't it? So. You, you, you never can predict it. Um, so this is the first, this is going to be the first full, we hope, but it should be, first full point-to-point season for, for two years now, isn't it? The first full crack you're going to get at it with everything that's happened over the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. It's been, um, it's been a tricky time for the last couple of years. Um, just had to do the best we can. Same for everybody, isn't it? How, how have you been affected... In the mate adversely. I mean, is, is is financially the most obvious thing, or, or or what other problems have you encountered because of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, obviously financially, the first year we we got stopped in mid March, was it? Uh, whereas we'd have been going on until beginning of June. So, other than the training fees, obviously we trade a few four-year-olds. We didn't get to run a good few of those because it got shut down early. So, yeah, financially it's been tricky. It's it's hard to stomach for the owners as well. You know, it's, it's difficult. I think this is something that um, David Dennis, who was in at the, the, the top of the program, um, and I were touching upon about how yourself and Gina have, have talked about certainly recently, you know, trying to, to bring young horses on and then hopefully make a profit on them if you if you do sell them on as well. Obviously, we're a long way off what happens in Ireland currently, yeah. but do you see yourselves or hopefully see yourselves going forward? talked of in the same light as some of the, the big Irish operations that do that sort of thing and is that realistic do you think? Yeah I mean obviously that's a dream um, I feel we're a good way off that at the moment my argument is always we're buying the horses from the same sales as the Irish boys you know there is no reason they're any worse than the Irish horses but the issue we have is we're running against exposed ex-national hunt horses and it can be easy to pick holes in the form so from from that angle it, it's a it's a harder sell but you know, hopefully we keep buying better horses slightly every year and we can keep producing a numbers game, really, of producing good horses in the end. So, uh, how, how long do you think that... Are you talking about changing the whole dynamic of point-to-point racing, potentially, or, or is it just for yourselves as a yard operating that way? Uh, perhaps more of ourselves, really, I think. Um, I think there's been a massive switch in point-to-pointing over the last 10 years. Tom Lacey was sort of the pioneer in it. In, in terms of buying commercial horses and then selling them on, and then ourselves, Fran and Charlie, Tom Weston, there's a good number now of, of younger people that are starting to do it to, to earn a living, and, mm. and that's the reality. You have to do it to, to make any money from training. So, <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I think given time and natural progression, hopefully we can we can start to catch up a bit. What will be the mix of horse in, in your yard currently? So I was thinking about that on the way down. With uh, There's 23-year-old horses this time um, that hopefully we can get traded in the spring after they've run, and then there'd be the best part of 40 older horses. So we're still still a little way apart, mm. but... Um, that's a big... I mean, see, that, that's... That's a big operation. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's big. If you'd yeah. Have, if you'd have asked me how many horses I thought you had, it would have been genuinely. I probably would have said said half that. That's yeah. a big operation. Yeah, it's grown grown dramatically over the last few years. You know, um, we've we've kept increasing numbers, and I think there's a big pull for, for from our point of view. I can offer Gina and Jack as stable jockeys. Yeah, they're there every day of the week. You know, it makes it's got to be give owners confidence to then that they can. Um, get a decent rider for the weekend you know yeah jack had a good winner yesterday you, he did, you yeah. just reminded yeah. me half a piece did he well he folds up neat for a big tall lad so i mean <laughs> i don't want to say he's too tall but it's it's tricky isn't it he should probably be playing basketball in all honesty <laughs> shouldn't he <laughs> it doesn't make life easy does it no um, he doesn't but he's very talented very talented and he's invaluable to gina and i at home he does yeah. all of the work with the young horses breaks them all in in the summer when they come back from the sales he's a proper horseman um, and I think that reflects in his race riding, really. He's, he's got an awful lot of confidence. He'll sit back and perhaps watch things open up in front of him a bit more than Gina, who, who rides totally off her gut, and when she wants to go, she goes. <laughs> There's no playing jockeys, you know. Who listens to you more, Tom? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. I listen to the pair of them. Yeah. But, uh, this, um, this is Jack, um, at, but at, at yours at home. Yeah, that, that's actually honestly and truthfully that um, okay. Ollie Signey's got now. He's placing a couple of bumpers and um, he ran quite well over hurdles the other day at Fontwell. Where did you get him from? Bought him at Doncaster. Um, he was a 20 grand store, a nice horse that, you know, we didn't. We, he was a COVID horse we didn't get to run, so sold him before, mm. before he did run. Funnily enough, he was entered in the maiden that Ahoy Senor actually won. So we'd have probably bumped into a good one that day, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I'm interested with... Obviously, after the Cheltenham Festival this year, there was this huge debate. Yes, this year. Yeah, this a huge year. debate about last season about why there was such Irish dominance. And a lot of it seemed to come back to the early stages of a, of a horse's life and to what's happened on the Irish pointing scene over the last decade or so. Um, from, from your perspective, how much do, do you sort of look over the water and think, I'd love to be in, in that position? Or do you just accept that it's a slightly different... Um, it's a, it's a slightly different game over here at the moment. It's sort of both, really, to be honest. Um, like we, we look over there and I think, because we've been at it five years now, really, properly, they've been at it a long time. Mm. So in terms of time, we've got a lot of catching up to do. But I, I, I don't know, really. I think hopefully time will sort all of that out. But if you're buying, ho you're buying horses from the same places, right? Yeah, the same sales, yeah. So it, is n it, it can't be just a case of the... the the Irish that are over there are buying or, or hanging on to, to solely the better no, prospects? Is it, is it just a level of competition which we can't of, match? I think a lot of the time, if you look at the sales results at the, at, from these select sales, whether it be at Cheltenham or Goffs or wherever, the, the top lots genuinely head back over the water. Mm. Um, so maybe that's got something to do with it. I, I don't know, really. Prize money, again, they've got better prize money over there. So In the pointing sphere? Well, no. Well, yes, definitely in the pointing sphere, but also under rules. So. Mm. So that's that. That's going to keep owners more interested yeah. in, in staying over yeah. there. Would there ever be a temptation on on your part, or for you know for 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 training 
rules horses or not? We have this discussion quite a bit, to be honest, we're sort of at a number where we could, but uh, Gina and I have never worked in a professional yard. Um, no, don't know anything about how it works, really. We well, can good, get a good. horse nor, fit. Nor, nor do I. How different <laughs> is it then? <laughs> well, we can get a horse fit and get them to run well, hopefully, on, a, you know, on the day we want them to. Mm. Planning a horse's career out, whether it be a handicapper or a graded horse, mm. is a totally different ball game and, and one that would take a lot of learning for us, I think. I see. So it's not necessarily the day-to-day -day training a horse, knowing a horse, getting them right for a race, but it's it's the campaigning and the placement, yeah. which would take a little bit of getting used to. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's relatively simple. Get them fit, healthy, find a track that will suit and run them, really. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, it's, it's such a totally different ball game for, for professional trainers. So, so um, But it's something that you discuss, but again, you might just be a little away from, from making that step. And obviously, you've got a, f a first full crack in a couple of years at a full pointing season. So you, you, you're going to do that for the next few years, certainly. Yeah, definitely. And, and personally, I think from a financial point of view, we're better off doing what we're doing and getting a reputation for trading nice young horses than trying to do both. Mm. I think there comes a point then when you get a conflict of interest, you can't go to the sales to sell a horse and buy the same horse back, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that works. So from our angle, I think we're far better off sticking with what we're doing, really. Do you feel you've got that reputation that you talk of now? Not yet, but something you hopefully, not? I, I think hopefully we can, uh, something I'd like to build and, you know, whether it be Dan Skelton or Ben Pooling or whoever, go, you know, get an order for a horse. I know where there'll be a nice one. We'll give Tom a ring. Yeah. You know, that's what I'd love to happen. We're a long way off that. So, tell, tell me about the, the, the your background personally and how you've ended up at, at, at this point setting up with Gina. So, both obviously rode point to point in. Believe it or not, a few stone ago. But, um, I believe yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but we met like that. Um, obviously, got married, started training together with a farm at home. I do that a bit still as well and then just gradually increase the number of horses and it's sort of grown into quite a large operation now. What was the, the, the hardest thing at home? Was it just having no no races for horses to run in or, or Gina not being able to ride? How did you cope with that? Yeah, she's not great with that. So no. She likes to beat somebody at something every day. <laughs> so <laughs> um, whether it be show jumping or racing or something, she's a competitive person. So like it, it was frustrating for us all. You know, the horses were in great nick. Um, we actually had 12 winners the first week back after the break. So, you know, we'd, we'd kept them all sort of <laughs> there and we didn't really know when we were going to get going for a long time. And then luckily it all sort of sorted itself out and away we went. So so, so how does the, the next few months look with regard to in particular the young horses you're going to bring forward and then, and then hopefully sell? That happens at the back end of the campaign. Yeah, so we've got a few four-year-olds left from, from last year that didn't run this time. Like the ground went against them or whatever. Um, so they'll be out hopefully in the next, well, pre-Christmas anyway. We can get them sold all being well before the new year. And then the three-year-olds turn four, obviously, in January, and then we'll start to run them sort of February on, really. And then, yeah, hopefully target those Cheltenham select sales and entry later on in the season. What's the, what's the advantage for any buyer out there looking for a, for a young horse? What's the advantage of getting them out of the pointing sphere, do you think? English pointing sphere is value, I think. Third time lucky, he was beaten in an English point of point. I don't know how much he was sold for. He was sold privately, but he wouldn't have been north of a hundred thousand. I shouldn't think. You know, he was beaten in a point. He was beaten in an English point. In of an point. English point, well, he's yeah. not going to. He, yeah, he's not going to be know, a huge amount. He looks a high class horse, doesn't he? Going forward. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's massive value to be had. You've probably got to go through the races a bit harder, buying an English pointer maybe. Um, get to know, you know, which parts of the country perhaps are more renowned for produ like not producing, but have higher, higher quality racing, if you like. So, mm. which parts would they be? The Midlands is quite a strong area uh, where we are. Um, so it's myself and Fran and Charlie were third mm. in the title this time, and Alan Hill was second. You know, the, between the three of us, we'd quite a lot of horses in and it's a very competitive area the southwest very competitive as well but if you sort of head north or down to the southeast it's not as strong you know so um tell me about the young um jockey you've got the uh, is it natalia irvin uh, natalia irvin yeah she's been with us now this is a this will be a third season um she's a good girl she works hard at home she's got huge dreams of being like rachel blackmore as a lot of people have, but whether that'll happen, I don't <laughs> know. But um, does she? I mean, in fairness, does she say that and, and use Rachel's name? And, and yeah, she like does. That? Yeah, yeah. So you know, she's obviously looks up to somebody. Um, she that's, she but that's great. That's yeah, what, it's good. That's, that's what we the whole that, thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's the hope. I think of of. Um, Again, we were talking to David about this, David Dennis, and mm. he was talking about his thirteen-year-old daughter who wants to go, and he mentioned Rachel Blackmore's name as well there. But yeah. there is yeah. there is that hope for young girls coming through now that it's 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 very realistic that they can get right to the top of their game yeah definitely you know um it is harder for them there's no question but hopefully that gap again is closing up and um rachel's definitely sort of driving the f that from the front isn't she so going forward have you got a, a, a tally that you're hoping for this year do you do you operate like that or not necessarily not necessarily um if, if I, like, we've a lot a lot in obviously um if we can keep them all healthy then yeah it would be nice to to sort of equal or better our best season which was 48 so um, if we could aim for somewhere around there I'd be over the moon it's probably a, a dream but let's hope. So I think whenever I talk to a, a trainer I always end up by saying what's the sort of what's the tally you want um, you know by, by the end of the season if you've got one but I never <laughs> never really you're a business right so yeah. you you want you you're a business to make money yeah exactly. don't train horses yeah. for nothing. No no. So it do you, I guess you've got to operate like that as well and go, yeah, there's a tally of winners I want to make, but we want to make X amount of money as well. I mean, the most important thing for us financially is to, to hope we've got a nice bunch of young horses and if we've got good stock, which we look all right at the moment, you know, hopefully we can do well with them in the springtime and, and that's what really counts. So. And, and as a point-to-point a, a -point trainer and a champion point-to-point -point trainer now, mm. it's obviously the last year's been different, but it's easy enough to keep your head above water financially at the moment. Or not. <laughs> Like we send the f the bills out at the end of every month, we break even probably on the training side of it. We're not dear, I don't think, but we're not the cheapest either. We don't pay a rent on a yard. I make all my own haylage, do all my own straw. We run it fairly tight. It's very tricky to make a living from training a number of horses. You you've got to rely on the trading yeah. side of it to, 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 to really make a proper living from it, definitely. You've got to produce. Yeah, I think so. The good horses yeah. to go to that and that's how you make your living. Yeah, for us it is definitely so.